Straw Hut Media. It's no secret that worldwide, LGBTQ people experience vastly different levels of acceptance, freedom, and protection. Even in the US, a comparatively progressive nation, we're in a constant push and pull, sometimes one step forward, two steps back, sometimes two steps forward, one step back. The last few years have been more of the latter, unfortunately. Today, we're joined by sociologist Amy Adamczyk to talk about the three major societal contributors to a nation's stance on LGBTQ people. Why do some nations enact laws to protect their queer citizens, while others enact laws to demonize them? If there's one thing to take away from this episode's deep dive into the sociology behind LGBTQ rights, it's that we're trending in the right direction. So don't give up hope. I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. This is Amy Adamczyk. She's a sociologist who focuses on how different contexts, like your nationality, where you live, who your friends are, and personal religious beliefs, shape our attitudes about criminal behavior, health, and so-called deviance. And I'm a professor with John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the Graduate Center, which are both a part of the City University of New York. Growing up on a dairy farm in rural Wisconsin, Amy says she was raised in a very religiously conservative household. Now, obviously, she lives and teaches in New York City, which might actually be the antithesis of her childhood experience. She says she's always been curious about the ways religion influences our beliefs, both individually and more broadly on a societal level. And so a number of years ago, I was looking at attitudes about LGBTQ individuals, both in the United States and across nations. And I found these really interesting effects of religion, not just individual religious differences, but these effects across nations that couldn't be sort of boiled down to individual religious influences. In 2016, she and two of her colleagues wrote a paper called Place Matters, contextualizing the roles of religion and race for understanding Americans' attitudes about homosexuality. It ended up getting a lot of attention, and not only within academia. People were interested. And I thought, wow, this is an area where I can really truly contribute and try to shed some light as to why views about LGBTQ individuals vary so much across geographical areas and how they are changing over time, both within the United States and then abroad. I first came across Amy through an article she wrote for The Conversation back in 2017. It was titled, Why Do Some Countries Disapprove of Homosexuality? Money, Democracy, and Religion. In it, she presents her research from more than 80 nations. She was interested in all the different variables that could contribute to and influence public opinion of LGBTQ issues. I thought about like, hey, what about gender equality? Uh, I thought about democracy. I thought about freedom of the press. I thought about, you know, everything you could almost, you know, envision. From there, she said she wanted to get even more specific. And then I wanted to narrow it down and go, okay, what is it that really, if we have to, you know, highlight the specific characteristics within countries that are likely to shape individuals' attitudes, what what would it be? And uh, what I found is it was really three major factors, and that was economic development, so how rich or poor a country is, uh, democracy, and then, of course, religion. 
So let's look at number one, economic development. Now, we're not just talking about how much one person makes in comparison to another, though that does play a role. We're talking about national wealth. Think about the US. Yes, there is massive economic disparity in our country. There are poor people, and there are very, very wealthy people. But the country itself is rich. And being in a richer nation, Amy says, contributes to some important differences in how you orient yourself to the world. So in very poor countries, uh, people are more likely to be concerned about basic survival. Uh, parents may worry about how to obtain clean water and food for their children. Uh, residents may feel that if they stick together and work closely with their community, they will lead a more predictable and stable life. They'll have more security, right? When group mentality creates stability and safety, individual differences end up being discouraged. Amy says that's part of the reason why many residents from more economically disadvantaged countries tend to view same-sex relationships as a problem. It's seen as violating traditional sensibilities and challenging traditional norms. Conversely, as nations get richer, people tend to worry less about basic survival. And what that means is that people become uh, less dependent on the larger group, but they're less concerned about the things that they would otherwise be concerned with. And they actually have more freedom. Um, they have more freedom to choose their partners. They have more freedom to choose their lifestyles. They want to try different and diverse things. It becomes exciting and interesting. Um, they tend to be more interested in themselves and uh, interested in individualism and all the interesting things that that can bring about and expressing yourself as an individual. Of course, even in relatively rich countries like the United States, you get a mixed bag. But the existence of supportive groups alongside the unsupportive ones can begin to shape and guide even the slow-to-change parts of society to embrace difference. There's just an, a greater interest in diversity and um, you know, expressing yourself. There's time to do it. There's security to do it. You're encouraged to do it. Um, and that's, that's what leads to, I think, a lot of um, really interesting things and a lot of excitement around LGBTQ individuals. On to number two, democracy. Now, there are a lot of ways that democracy positively affects human rights and tolerance, but one big way it does it is by introducing residents to new perspectives. And uh, one mechanism for doing that is going to be the media, whether that's the social media, whether that's the mainstream media, whether that's you know Ellen DeGeneres on television, or uh, whether that's you know Will and Grace um, entering the living room of my conservative mother and introducing her to, you know, um, a gay man who she thinks she probably never met before. An uncensored media gives people the opportunity to see things outside of themselves and their immediate surroundings. It also encourages people to respect individuals' rights because maybe I'm doing something that is, um, you know, different or um, non-norm abiding or something along those lines and uh, other people want the same rights, whatever those rights are. When governments censor the media, whether that's social media or mainstream media, exposure is limited and that causes detrimental effects on tolerance and acceptance. In the U.S., mainstream media historically has played an important role in moving people to more tolerant perspectives. In more socially conservative nations, and especially theocracies, social media has the ability to bring queer issues into the public eye, even when the mainstream media doesn't contribute. 
But with social media, we have a similar potential and we actually have a little bit even more potential, I would say, uh, because now people get, just can get so much more access to information, to ideas, things they don't understand, they can understand them. Uh, people who are exploring themselves can find other people who are doing a similar thing and may have written about it and provide insight into it. As we've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement, social media has played a critical role in spreading awareness about systemic racism and violence to all ends of the country and the world. But on the other hand, police have used it to ID protesters and interfere with organizing. There's a similar danger when it comes to representation of LGBTQ plus people in conservative countries. I will say, too, that uh, social media can be incredibly useful, but in some nations where you know, homosexuality is a crime. Um, you know, social media can be both, uh, you know, a, a positive, really positive thing and a really negative thing. Uh, it provides another mechanism for the government to monitor individuals and what they're doing and where they're at and then to out them. One of the basic tenets of democracy is freedom of speech, which, among other invaluable things, gives people the right to protest you're not supposed to be arrested for protesting. Though we've seen that right being challenged over the last six weeks. Actually, last night we were um, out walking around and I guess there's a little piece of me that, you know, wants to push things a little bit because I, I want change. And so being a part of, you know, the various protests, but we were looking to join a protest um, right on the right around the Central Park area. And I could hear them, but I we were walking to catch up with them. And just as we almost got there, um, suddenly, you know, what seemed like 40 police uh, vehicles uh, came to the area with their sirens on and all these officers jumped out and they all had the little plastic handcuffs and they just started arresting people. And this was like, I don't know, 8.15 last night. I, I mean, it was, you know, eight o'clock was our curfew last night. And so they, and then and the protests were completely peaceful. And then they just started, um, you know, arresting people, I guess, for breaking the curfew. So uh, it's, these are complicated times. I mean, it's, that's, that's rough, you know? <laughs> so I've been involved as best as I can be uh, and am uh, looking to get more involved and I'm looking to figure out what I can do as an academic uh, to talk about this issue, better understand this issue, educate the public, educate my students, um, and just you know, use this momentum because it, it I think it really is an exciting time. By June 4th, more than 10,000 people had already been arrested for protesting during the Black Lives Matter rallies. That didn't stop us, though. And when people feel that they can freely express their ideas, they become even more inclined to speak up for themselves. They come, become more inclined to speak up for others. And all of this is going to lead to more tolerance for individual difference. The third major factor that Amy found influences a national view of LGBTQ issues is religion. And within religion, she found that there are two main components. First, what is the dominant religion within the country? Is there a high proportion of people who are Muslim or conservative Protestant? This as opposed to a high proportion of people who are mainline Protestant, which is more likely to be found in Europe. And uh, I also found, though, that um, 
you know, the, the overall levels of religious engagement within a country, how much people are going to church, uh, how important they think religion is in their life, how much they're praying. This too was like this macro country characteristic that sort of came down and shaped how individuals thought about LGBTQs. Even if they weren't even personally religious, these things would uh, come up. Within countries, a similar set of demographic characteristics tend to influence how people feel about the LGBTQ community and queer rights issues. So, for example, if you talk about uh, women in the United States, they tend to be more liberal on uh, average than men. But if you were to go to, say, Taiwan, for example, you'd find the same thing. Women tend to be more liberal than men. Um, also, we find, for example, older people tend to be more conservative than younger individuals, right? We tend to find that Muslims, on average, are uh, more likely to disapprove of LGBTQ individuals than, say, Catholics, Jews, and mainline Protestants. Those are individual characteristics, and Amy has found that across nations, she saw these differences represented over and over again. But just like people, countries too have particular characteristics that can influence individuals' attitudes. And that's where her top three factors come in, which to recap were economic development, democracy, and religion. And when it comes to religion, you don't even have to consider yourself particularly religious to soak up the religious perspective on LGBTQ issues. In other words, Amy says you pick up on the norms, values, views, and laws that are exhibited by the culture you're exposed to. We absorb both consciously and unconsciously how the people around us are acting, feeling, and talking about things. Sometimes we want these people to like us or accept us, so we carry on characteristics that we think they're going to approve of. Other times, we do it without even fully realizing how much we're being influenced. And so that's sort of the difference between individual characteristics versus what we call country characteristics or a country contextual influence where the, you know, the country contains laws and norms and so forth and can have an effect on you even when you personally don't necessarily have those attributes. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll learn how the U.S. stacks up against other countries and the role global economic pressure plays in protecting LGBTQ rights. Welcome back. Today we're talking to Amy Adamczyk, sociologist and author of the book Cross-National Public Opinion About Homosexuality. If you think about every country in the world existing on a series of spectrums, from most progressive to least progressive, where do you think the U.S. lands? You kind of want to think in terms of other nations that are similar to the United States. And so you think of other nations that have sort of similar levels of democracy, similar levels of economic development. They're, you know, America is a very rich country. And so we often compare ourselves to the nations over in Europe and also Australia and a few a handful of other places. We wouldn't want to compare ourselves to a country amidst revolution or that's more economically disadvantaged. For example, it doesn't make sense to compare ourselves to Yemen or Uganda or Honduras. And so when you look at the United States relative to its sisters, uh, basically what you find is that the United States is in a more conservative direction uh, compared to those other nations. That's right. Even though we're doing better than a lot of other countries, we're not exactly valedictorians of our class. 
And that's not to downplay the massive victories we fought tirelessly for in support of LGBTQ rights. And if we tick off the three main components, we know we're a rich nation, so we score high in the economic development category, we live in a democratic nation, even though it doesn't always make the right choices. The component that holds us back from acing the test, Amy says, is religion. If you are to look at the information about how much Americans attend church or how you know important they say religion is in their lives, it's really quite high relative to the European nations. Even though Germany gave us Albert von Schrenk-Natzing, who claimed to have hypnotized the gay out of a man in 1899, and Austria gave us Eugen Steinick, a pioneering Austrian endocrinologist who argued that homosexuality was rooted in a man's testicles, which led to the horrific testicle transplantation experiments in the 1920s, during which gay men were castrated, then given heterosexual testicles. And of course, Austria gave us Sigmund Freud, who argued that everyone is born bisexual and is later conditioned into their preference. Now, mind you, Austria has cute little crosswalks that light up with same-sex couples when you cross the street. But you've got to travel to America for electroshock therapy, lobotomies, aversion therapy, and conversion therapy. And the big push in the U.S. was due to religious ideas. So who, you might ask, is winning the race? No surprise, the Netherlands are doing pretty well. They've, you know, allowed for um, same-sex marriage for a very long time now. Uh, they openly welcome LGBTQ individuals. They've been you know, doing this for a while, and it's it's just a very liberal environment. It's liberal about a lot of things, but it's definitely liberal on this particular issue. Other countries that are doing better than the U.S. include France, Sweden, Norway, and Germany. In general, the world is slowly getting more progressive. Some of it, Amy says, has to do with cohort turnover where younger progressive generations replace older, more conservative ones. Or it can have to do with attitudinal changes where everyone is changing at the same time. So in the United States, a lot of the um, progress that has been made has happened within a single generation. Um, and what that means is that everyone is changing around the same time. So grandma's changing her views about LGBTQ individuals, and so are the grandchildren. Unfortunately, despite worldwide progress, there has been a backlash to some of the more liberal perspectives that gain momentum in places like the United States and Europe. More economically developed nations have been putting pressure on these less developed countries to adopt LGBTQ-friendly policies and perspectives. And some of these nations uh, feel, I would say, that they are being bullied a little bit. Obama, for example, led a movement to withhold aid from countries with anti-LGBTQ plus laws. Trump, unsurprisingly, doesn't support it. But it has been set as a strategy for advancing LGBTQ plus rights throughout the world, in countries throughout Africa and the Middle East. I think some of the backlash that we've been seeing in nations like Uganda is the result of this. I mean, Uganda was never particularly liberal, at least according to survey data. We can go back a ways, and, and it wasn't that they were liberal and then became more conservative. But I just think they put so much more emphasis on, uh, you know, on, um, on pushing back um, to make a statement uh, about how they feel about these richer nations, sort of pushing them around. That, that's how I think they see it. Some countries, on the other hand, have leveraged the global policies to protect LGBTQ plus people to their advantage. 
one country that has been doing that is Taiwan. And so I did a bunch of interviews in Taiwan uh, in my book where I went in and tried to understand better how the Taiwanese feel about LGBTQ individuals, what was causing changes. Um, you know, Taiwan should have been uh, more liberal than they initially appeared. A lot of the Asian nations should be more liberal than they were coming out to be. And I couldn't get my head wrapped around why they were not as progressive as, you know, my statistical models might suggest that they should be. But when I got to Taiwan, I got a lot of information and I, I learned pretty fast what some of the mechanisms were. But I will say too, for a number of the uh, organizing groups that I met with, uh, they were very interested in distinguishing themselves from China, which they saw as having a really problematic human rights record and being much less de democratic than them. And also them, you know, Taiwan having a really kind of precarious uh, position in the world with some countries not even recognizing, many countries not recognizing them as their own country. And indeed, last year, they became the first Asian nation to pass marriage equality. I think a lot of that was inspired with the idea of let us get in the game with you, with you more developed, you more progressive, you more democratic nations. And also, uh, let's be clear that we are not China, you know, that we are different in some of these important ways. In the same way that the U.S. and other progressive nations use their power to influence smaller countries, large conservative nations like China and Russia can exert that power over developing nations as well. China's economic power, for example, is incredible. And Russia is still closely tied to many of the former Soviet Union countries. And indeed, the Orthodox Church, which you find in that region of the world, uh, has been very opposed to LGBTQ individuals, and they have focused heavily on trying to solidify their national identity and to uh, say that um, LGBTQ individuals don't fit within that national identity. Um, so the, these other nations, if they have a connection with some of these poor and less powerful countries, they are definitely trying to enact their will. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the Western nations have historically had a bigger influence, but we know that's changing. And we know how powerful these other countries uh, can be and uh, are very much interested in getting their perspectives within the world. Last week, a documentary called Welcome to Chechnya premiered on HBO. And it looks at the terrifying treatment of LGBTQ plus people in Chechnya. Hundreds of men in Chechnya were kidnapped, tortured, and killed in what is now called the Gay Purge. Chechnya is a republic of Russia. I think some of this does have to do with power uh, and the fact that, you know, a lot has changed in the, you know, since the late 1980s when we still had the Soviet Union and uh, a lot of these countries are feeling more insecure than they otherwise have felt. And at the same time, religion is developing in some of these nations in a really incredible way. And of course, they couldn't have had that with the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union tried to limit so much of that. And so um, in these places, uh, you know, there has been a renewed interest in religion. There's been a renewed interest in national identity, which they're then connecting up with uh, family identity and, oh, we're family oriented. And, you know, we're different from those people over there. You know, we're, these are our values now. Frighteningly, the LGBTQ plus community has taken the brunt of this aggression. 
LGBTQ individuals, are they're an easy scapegoat because uh, in a lot of places they don't have much visibility uh, and they don't have much power and many of them have had to stay underground and people you know in a lot of cases the, the media is censored you can't you can't even find out about these individuals they don't they don't have um they're, they're not represented in the mainstream media it's harder to find them in social media and so they become more invisible and it's certainly easier to hate a group that you have no connection with that you don't think is in your family that isn't a part of your friends then it's uh, an us against them sort of thing in the u.s there are plenty of areas where we face the threat of being ostracized violated and even killed for being queer what's especially alarming about the danger in countries like chechnya is that it's state-sanctioned but with allies in our own government and abroad we can help protect our lgbtq plus family across the globe just one more reason it's important to vote and make your voice heard. I highly recommend reading Amy's article for The Conversation and her book, which was published by University of California Press, called Cross-National Public Opinion About Homosexuality Examining Attitudes Across the Globe. We'll have a link to her website in the show notes, where you can find links to her interviews, opinion pieces, and all of her academic papers. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. Please stay safe, stay healthy, stay home, and listen to podcasts. I will get this microphone back out to you guys tomorrow so you can, you know, do your next one.